Mind Podium, where we talk about all things mental health. I'm your host, Piali. Having lived with clinical depression and anxiety for over 23 years, I aim to reduce the shame, stigma, ignorance, and apathy around mental illness, raise awareness around mental health, and through meaningful, open conversations, give hope to those who are struggling. My guest today is Sharvari Tilu. Sharvari is an educationist, an artist, and is an alumnus of the prestigious Harvard University. She has been working in the field of education for over 15 years now. Sharvari was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 2 when she was 18 and works on raising awareness around the illness that affects 45 million people worldwide through her blog, Bipolar Express. Sharvari, welcome to the Mind Podium. I'm very happy to have you uh, with me today for this conversation. Uh, you know, my first question to you is that, uh, you know, given the fact that India has one of the lowest rates of bipolar disorder, uh, a lot of people in our country don't really have a clear understanding of what the disease really is, right? And in fact, uh, many have not even heard of it. Uh, so as someone that has lived with uh, bipolar disorder for as long as you have, I mean, you got diagnosed when you were only 18 years old. How would you describe bipolar disorder to someone who has not experienced it? Uh, first of all, thanks, Piali, for having me here. And um, I'm so happy that you're doing this because I think we need more people talking about mental illness. Um, so I'll address this question. Um, I think we may have the lowest rates, but I also think that um, not just bipolar, but any mental illness is highly underdiagnosed in India. And there's still a large uh, taboo attached to it uh, or a stigma attached to it. Um, simplistically speaking, bipolar disorders, when you swing between mo uh, extreme moods, so either good and bad or high and low, uh, there are two kinds of bipolar disorder, one and two. Uh, I have bipolar 2 disorder in which the lows are more pronounced than the highs. This means that I experience depression more than any kind of mania. Um, I think honestly, it is extremely hard to explain to someone um, what it is and how it feels because it's not tangible or visible like something like cancer, for example. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, I can use symptoms to try to explain it. So, for example, mood swings, insomnia, um, feeling melancholic, feeling extremely low or depressed or alone, etc. There's also some research that suggests that there may be some imbalance in neurotransmitters in the brain that uh, play a role. Um, the difficult part is that this illness is not under my control. So when I feel it and how I feel is not under my control. It's extremely unpredictable. I may be feeling fine one moment and uh, feel low the next. So I think that's that's about it. Thank you for uh, for, for sharing that with us, uh, Sharvari. And I think uh, for me, uh, one of the key takeaways from what you said was the fact that this is not in your control which is something that I want to probably uh, delve into a little bit, right? Because often yeah. uh, when uh, when somebody is ill, 
you know, the, the person also unfortunately is at the receiving end of a lot of judgment, right? And a, a, a lot of the times that judgment actually does come from very close quarters. It could yeah. be friends, it could be family, it could sometimes even be your parents uh, who may think that this is something that you can work on and get better, right? Uh, which is not yeah. necessarily the case because, you know, when certain chemicals in your body are impacted, it is not something that you, you can do much with uh, beyond, of course, you know, taking your medication and, you know, trying yeah. to maintain a healthy lifestyle, which I think everybody tries to do. But it's not really something that you can control. And therefore, putting the blame on the sufferer, which in often... Um, you know, uh, oftentimes is the case, right? Um, I think only makes things harder for the person who's suffering from the illness to uh, get out of it, get better, uh, or to just navigate life, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you spoke about bipolar 2, um, I mean, I think the first thing to to know and understand is that there are two kinds of bipolar, like you mentioned, there is bipolar one and bipolar two. Um, and the whole uh, point of doing this particular discussion with you, um, you know, is to really, really demystify bipolar disorder and try and understand it as much as we possibly can, because it is one of the most um, uh, misunderstood diseases out there, right? Uh, right? So when you when you talk about the two types of bipolar, and I mean, I was doing a little research myself, um, and when I uh, read about uh, bipolar two, um, I I understood that it is a less severe form of bipolar, uh, where the symptoms could be slightly less severe, or in some cases significantly less severe than bipolar one, which is a far more severe. Uh, kind of bipolar, right? So uh, with you, I mean, given the fact that you uh, got diagnosed very early on in life eight, when you were just 18, um, at, at what point and how did you start realizing that things were not fine with you? Uh, and to what extent do you think your, your symptoms were a little less than compared to, let's say, I mean, you know, bipolar one? Um, so, Piali, I'm I'm not sure I will necessarily say that one is uh, that bipolar two is less severe than bipolar one because really they they present themselves very differently. Um, by that I mean that in in bipolar two the the lows and depressive phases phases are much more pronounced than the manic phases. Um, I will only occasionally um, feel hypomanic, so which is like a, which is almost like when you're really happy or excited, but it's nothing out of the ordinary. It 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 may be so subtle that I don't even realize I'm going through a hypomanic phase. Whereas in in bipolar one, the mania is out of control, and that's why if you if you Google, you'll see that many creative people actually have bipolar one because that manic energy that bipolar one creates in you may um, help you be really creative you know or be a good painter or be a good actor or whatever it is um, so so I don't I'm not sure I agree with with the severe severity uh, necessarily because so in my case my right. depressive pain can be uh, very severe very severe um and it can last for days and over the years um i have learned to live with it um you know like i said 
I can't control the illness, but I can manage it. And I've come to a point where even if I'm going through a depressive phase for a month, I'm able to manage it with without just being completely crippled. Um, how it started, I it started when I was 13 um, and I had nobody had any idea, not, nor did I, because it started with uh, my having insomnia and I had some like a school incident um, that triggered this and I stopped sleeping when I was 13. But I only realized when I was 16 that uh, something was not right. Um, I was studying psychology and one of the first topics was depression. And I went through the whole list of um, symptoms and I literally ticked off every single point on that. And that's when I realized that, okay, something's not right with me and I need to see a therapist. So I started seeing a therapist at 16. And then when I was 18, I had uh, my first massive nervous breakdown and had to be hospitalized. Um, that's when I was diagnosed and uh, put on medication. Right. So actually, uh, you know, uh, most uh, mental illnesses do manifest uh, themselves pretty early on in one's life. I mean, for for example, in my case, I was only 13 years old when I got diagnosed with, you know, generalized anxiety disorder as well as clinical depression. And uh, you seem to have started seeing the symptoms pretty early. And I think what's in interesting is the fact that, you know, it was through your uh, education and through your, uh, you know, academic course that you actually first started realizing that something was was not right. But throughout this, this process of, uh, you know, experiencing the symptoms as well as getting diagnosed and getting help for it and, um, you know, getting the treatment that, that you needed, your parents uh, were very, very supportive uh, and uh, they were a strong pillar of support uh, throughout your journey with the illness, as, as is your husband uh, currently. And you have identified him as one of the major caregivers in your blog. And what I want to understand from you is, you know, the role that caregivers play, right? Because it is a very, very critical uh, role. Uh, and I do tend to ask this question often to uh, to people that are uh, that are suffering. And in your case, I think the question that I would ask you is obviously the role that they play, um, and and what is uh, uh, you know what makes the role so critical. And the second thing is, um, how do caregivers also ensure that they themselves uh, protect their mind and uh, mental well-being uh, because often uh, it is easy for them to also slip into um, if not uh, an illness but at least a phase of uh, of uh, let's say uh, unrest right uh, uh, because they're they're constantly sort of having to deal with somebody who's living with it uh, and I know of many cases where that has happened and uh, what according to you is um, key to ensuring uh, that the caregivers protect their mental health as well? Uh, honestly, I think my parents are um, unusual um, because I, I don't know of many people uh, with a mental illness in, in whose case their parents have openly accepted it. They still say that they don't understand what I go through. 
and that's the thing with this illness right that you may never be able to understand a caregiver may never be able to understand um, absolutely for, yeah yeah for parents it might be a slightly easier because you know they they are your parents and they love you unconditionally but uh, for a partner it's much harder and um, you at the end of the day unfortunately um they can't make you feel better that is something that you have to work on yourself because when i'm feeling low or depressed it's coming from somewhere deep within me it's not coming from the outside so no one can help me feel better apart from myself and i know that sounds sordid and hopeless but <laughs> but that that is the case that you have to work on yourself to and find tools to to feel better having said that what caregivers can do is provide you with a safe space you know um give positive nudges normalize the kind of crazy feelings that you're going through and make you feel loved which i think is very important make you feel loved and make you feel accepted um and um and just create a safe environment um it definitely requires a lot of patience and acceptance from the caregiver it has taken um my husband and 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 me many years to um, understand each other and understand this illness because it's just so complex uh for example it's very hard for him to hear if i'm having suicidal thoughts um because it hurts him and it hurts him that he can't do anything about it but yeah. he has worked on accepting this and he has worked and he has trained himself to separate me from my illness so the formula that we have together is um that we talk about how both of us are feeling because it's important to so where you're, where you're saying how does a caregiver um you know take care of herself or himself is that i think communication is key to to talk about how you're feeling it, it, for me to talk about what i'm going through and for him to talk about what he's going through and um while there's no way to really solve this um to be able to find a way to get through the dark space together you know and um and just knowing that um the illness is just a part of the relationship or the illness is just part of the caregiving and i think for the for the person for the patient uh, quote unquote it's important to be sensitive uh, about the caregiver's feelings because i think it's very easy to get lost in your own illness and not realize what what your loved ones are doing for you so i think it's very important to keep that in mind even if you are feeling sick even if you're sick and down to to sort of understand that okay this your not feeling good is having a toll on this person who loves you so i think that's that's sort of what we've um understood <laughs> through all these years together and you know of course right. having a dog helps 
which uh, so I, I when uh, when I'm in in Bangalore with my dog, I spend a lot of time with my dog, um, which really helps. Right, right. Uh, you know, I think what you said is obviously so relatable to me as well as I'm sure thousands of people that are battling some form of mental illness every single uh, minute of their lives. Um, let's talk about high functional mentally ill people, right? Um, and the struggles that they go through. Uh, and I, I do have a lot to say about this because I think that I, I probably do identify as as one. And uh, when I look at somebody like you and when I look at your profile, right, I mean, you know, you have uh, an almost spotless and extremely envious uh, sort of academic background. Uh, you went to the prestigious Harvard University, it doesn't get bigger and better than that. Uh, something that millions of people, uh, at least in our country, can only dream of. And you did that despite battling a debilitating mental illness like bipolar disorder. You have been an educator for over 15 years, having, uh, you know, I mean, been associated with many, many um, uh, very well-known uh, organizations. Um, and you're clearly high functioning in that sense. You yourself have said that, you know, academically, you've been, uh, you know, fairly, fairly promising. Uh, now, you know, when you look at high functional neurodiverse people, uh, I personally feel that it's actually tougher for them because, you know, people around them often forget that they actually are fighting an illness because they are constantly functioning at an optimum level and they're delivering. And sometimes in, in a lot of cases, they're actually over delivering, uh, maybe in, in some way to try to compensate for the illness that they have, particularly at work, for, for example. And therefore, because they're over delivering, overachieving, people around them often actually forget that they are in fact ill, uh, considering also the fact that, you know, this is an invisible disease. What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I have been very open about my illness, uh, more so in, in recent years. Uh, but when you're doing your job, like you said, people forget that you are fighting an illness. Um, I have felt very lonely because of this lack of understanding. With uh, mental illness being so rampant, I believe it is crucial to educate people at workplaces about it. To, to remove the, the stigma around it. Um, I did this before and my colleagues were surprised to know that it is possible to have a quote-unquote normal life in spite of having bipolar disorder. There is really such little awareness around mental illness. It's, it's shocking. Um, so... Oh, yes, it's shocking. Yeah. 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 So I think... Um, it's it's just very difficult to to have this illness and and be because i don't know about you but you know when i'm when i'm working and and i'm around colleagues it's like i am almost hyper vigilant about my illness yeah because you're hyper aware because, yeah hyper aware because because you don't want someone to point a finger at you and say, oh, she did this because she's mentally ill. Right, right. I I, I know that feeling. And I think that's a feeling that uh, many of us probably live with and yet are probably even, you know, I mean, probably too scared to even 
express and talk about and acknowledge yeah. that we actually even live with this fear, right? Uh, yeah. Because uh, labeling is something that one has gotten so used to uh, and you often sort of have to uh, really decide for yourself uh, whether or not you want to divulge uh, to people at work that you have an illness. And I will come to that question a little later because yeah. I do have a question on that. But I'm going to move on to... Uh, something a little more serious and probably even grim, but the reason that I want to um, definitely discuss this is because it's important. Um, suicide is a taboo topic in our country and um, it is probably a bigger taboo than, than mental illness. And yet uh, suicidality or the feeling of, uh, you know, being suicidal and ending your life is one of the most common symptoms of bipolar disorder as it is with, let's say, a depression or anxiety. But in, in case of bipolar disorder, it is actually said to be a lot higher compared to some of the other mental illnesses, right? In fact, I'm just going to quote some numbers here. Uh, research shows that up to 20% of uh, bipolar disorder patients end their life by suicide. And between 20 and 60% of them attempt suicide at least once in their lifetime. I mean, obviously, these are extremely startling numbers. And if we are not scared, even after looking at these numbers and continue to be ignorant about the illness, then I don't know what is really going to rattle us. But um, what do you think leads to higher suicide attempts and suicidal rates in bipolar disorder, uh, having lived with it for so long? Um, and how can one prevent this? To, to the best of one's abilities. Obviously, uh, there's very little that, that is in one's control because the mind does control you in most cases uh, of an illness. But how can one uh, prevent uh, this to some extent? From my own experience, um, I can guess that the rate of suicide is higher because there are more depressive phases um, in bipolar 2, and I'm talking about bipolar 2. I don't, um, I, I, I'm not sure what causes it in bipolar 1, but in bipolar 2, I can say that um, there are long periods of depressive phases. And when you are so depressed, you, you know, you've hit rock bottom and, and you, there's just no light at the end of the tunnel. Literally everything seems impossible. And, and, Suicide may seem like the only way out, especially if you don't have a support system and you don't have someone to talk to, talk to, and you don't have you you don't you you're not going for regular therapy or regular medication. It takes a lot of um, self work and a lot of managing and awareness to pull yourself out of this hole. Um. I have heard of people not wanting to take medication or go for therapy because the one time they went or the one medic medicine that they took didn't work. Um, there's no quick fix solution and it's a, it's a long road to managing this illness. So if you want to avoid that, you know, really just ending your life, I think the only way is to work on yourself 
and the biggest service you can do to yourself is to accept that you have an illness and there are ways to manage it and also that this illness that you have makes you feel suicidal it's not you and i think that it's important to separate self from the illness so for example my therapist gave me a very useful tool um i was going through a phase at one point where um every morning i would wake up feeling suicidal like literally i would open my eyes and the first thought would be that of suicide and my therapist told me that um i needed to normalize the suicidal thoughts he said you felt this before and you're going to feel it again and you have to just allow yourself to feel it and it's going to pass and um honestly having been through so the not resist that that feeling not resist. right yeah, yeah yeah that's a very helpful tip i mean yeah yeah and and it's really a matter of 5 to 10 minutes um that you have to endure and that you have to say that okay this is going to pass because uh, from my experience i know that it is really only 5 to 10 minutes and um i've read of instances where someone didn't have any support for those 5 minutes and that's what counts right so so if you are if someone is feeling suicidal they it's it's important to either have that self awareness or to have someone around them or to call a helpline because it's those 5 minutes that matter right uh, that's i think very helpful tip uh, for for those that are listening uh tell me about bipolar express a blog that you started a year ago uh with the objective of chronicling your experience of living with uh, bipolar disorder and empowering others living with a mental illness to thrive right obviously i'm keen to know what led to the blog uh did the pandemic for example play a big role in you finally wanting to start a blog and talk about your experiences and empowering others and um also what has been the response to it so far um, um i have seen your blog and i have read a, a lot of the posts and i do find them extremely engaging i do find them extremely relevant extremely relatable and in many ways i think you know it's therapeutic for the person that's writing and also the person that's reading that's what i i i found um and obviously the beautiful art uh, that you have in the blog does help because it's it's just so beautiful to look at um but uh, i want to know what's been the response what led to it and just anything and everything that you want to share about uh, bipolar express i do also want to really congratulate you for taking the step to um uh, you know sharing your experience uh, with with the world because i think uh, the more uh, of these platforms that we create in our own ways in our own very little ways the better it is for uh, the discourse of mental illness in our country and uh, you know we take a step uh, towards normalizing conversations around mental health thank you thanks dearly and thanks for reading it um regularly um you know i had been thinking about writing uh, writing about uh, my experience for for a long time 
um, just by looking at how unaware people are. Um, but what triggered it was when um, the actress Sushant Singh Rajput took his life. It almost felt like a personal loss. Yeah, to um, me too. Yeah. 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 One that could have been avoid, avoided and also all the chatter around it like, oh, he was so successful. He was so young. Why did he kill himself? And and that's part of the misunderstanding. It's got nothing to do with success. It's got nothing to do with how much money you have. It's got nothing to do with privilege either. Yeah, exactly. You know? And um, so at that point, um, I actually wrote an article and I sent it to a few newspapers, but nothing came of it. And then I uh, then one day I just decided that, you know what, I, I just have to do something about this because everywhere this whole the that articles were coming up on mental illness and and i i felt like i have so much experience that i you know so many things that i can talk about that i have to i have to write about it and uh, a few people really encouraged me to to go ahead and do it and um i roped in a friend who has a generalized um, anxiety disorder and who's also an illustrator and so um you know we just started it and so she's the one who does the illust illustrations um and uh, we started off not knowing what it's going to be not knowing how long we're going to be able to keep keep up with it um but it has somehow worked and we've somehow managed to uh, keep writing. Um, I felt the need to share because mental illness is largely mis misunderstood and people don't talk about it and most people don't even believe it exists. So, you know, if my talking about, about it openly can help reducing the stigma and taboo even a little, um, I will think I've done my bit. Um, I think the response has been very positive. Um, I have also had, I have regular readers and I have also had strangers write to me saying that reading my posts um, has made them feel that they are not alone. I think that's such a gratifying feeling, uh, right? And for those that are wanting to check out Sharbari's blog, I'll definitely include a link to the blog in the description too, uh, in the description of this of this podcast. Please do check her blog out. Um, Sharbari, my next question um, is is got a lot to do with work, uh, mental illness, and work, and um, how do you navigate this illness at workplace? Like I mentioned a little earlier in the in the conversation to you and um, this question is actually uh, contextual um, in the sense that um, you know uh, there was this article that I read recently uh, about um, the Supreme Court uh, letting a candidate with bipolar disorder become a judge and this I think came out in December 2021 right and the candidate had actually applied under the disability quota because bipolar disorder, uh, like many other mental illnesses, is considered a disability, which again, I'm sure many people do not know and are not aware of, but it is a disability. Yeah. And uh, many people actually negated his ability to carry out his duties, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in court, uh, till Supreme Court said that, you know, uh, he should be allowed to be a judge, right? 
Hmm. Now, what are your views on this? Because this is a very complex thing to navigate. Uh, because on one hand, illnesses like major depression, which I have, bipolar disorder that you have, these are considered a disability. But these are also invisible disabilities, right? Because people often forget about it, unlike physical disabilities, which are which are very much, you know, visible and out there. And on the other hand, mentally ill people uh, obviously are not any less deserving of being a significant contributor at work. And yet most people even today hesitate to talk about their mental illnesses at work. Uh, I have had many people reach out to me through my advocacy work that I do on LinkedIn and elsewhere, sending me a private message saying that we really, really laud what you're doing and, you know, the courage that you have to speak up about your, your illness and your condition uh, when we also suffer through uh, this and yet we have not been able to really do this and something is really holding us back and the fear is really around judgment the fear is really around being discriminated against at work uh, and work being impacted as a result of this um, so you know what are your views on this because this is obviously very very complex to navigate and should people living with a mental illness open up about their conditions while being hired right or should they not uh, uh, because if you uh, if you look at the way you know hiring is done in our in our country, there are so many uh, sort of biases, right? That that people anyway have to navigate through, right? So for example, you know if you're a new mother, there will be a certain bias against you, right? If you're a woman, there would yeah. be a certain bias against you. If you have not been at work for a couple of years and if you've taken a break and you're trying to get back to work, there there is going to be a certain bias against you. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, if you actually reveal that you are mentally ill, um, that is also adding another, uh, you know, level of uh, uh, sort of discrimination, uh, you know. So what is your take on this? Uh, I don't think there is any straightforward answer, honestly, to, to this topic uh, because it's really complex. So um, the way I think about this is um, number one there's a huge bias against mental illness and most people are either unaware about it or misunderstand it um, this makes it difficult to open up at especially a workplace from day one that too one might have to ease into it or maybe able to ease into it um, if the other or if the other employees don't seem sensitive enough, you may not be able to open up about it at all. So opening up depends entirely on the culture of the workplace. Um, the second point is is that um, in case of the person with the disability, you know, not everyone is a high functioning individual. Um, I have exactly. seen and known um, of people who do not take their illness seriously and so are not on medication or therapy. And so this probably makes them an unreliable employee. And so it's a strange case of, um, you know, not being fully aware of your own illness um, or I mean, I just don't know how you navigate this kind of, you, you, you'll have to. So the way I have done it in the past is that I've 
eased in after knowing that this is the kind of workplace where I can be myself, you know? And um, the third thing that I would say is that it's very important to be self-aware and knowing your illness is key in a work situation. So for instance, what are your triggers, your sensitivities, your anxieties, how well do you work with other people, etc. So, so there's just too many, um, too too many, um, what do you say? Too many different layers to this this situation. So, I I don't really think there's a black and white answer to this question, unfortunately. No, I completely agree, right? And uh, I 100% agree with you that there is no yes or no answer to this. This is not a straight question. Um, and I just think that um, while on one hand, like you're saying that, you know, uh, uh, in your case, you eased into it. And when you realized that it was OK for you to talk about your illness, only then did you open up. On the other hand, you know, uh, for someone like me, for instance, you know, if I'm interviewing, let's say, uh, for, for a certain role and I get a sense that this is going to be the sort of place where I will be discriminated against because of my illness, then in a way I feel like it's better because then I don't want to go and work in a place like that, right? So in a way that then acts as a great filter for me to say that, mm -hmm. okay, this is not really the place for me. It doesn't matter how much money they're offering. It doesn't matter how fancy the designation looks on paper. But if they're basically going to be discriminating against me and seeing me as somebody who is, let's say, less, quote unquote, right. or, um, you know, less, less dependable or less uh, competent or less, you know, desirable in a team, uh, then this is probably not uh, the place that I want to be a part of uh, because as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm doing my best and more to uh, ensure that at least work doesn't get affected. And so I don't need that level of, you know, right. uh, discrimination added to uh, the work situation because in the long run, it is only going to make things a lot more, um, you know, stressful for me, which will actually then be detrimental to my mental health, right? So, right. I mean, there are different ways of looking at this 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 situation and I really wanted to, yep. uh, you know, get your take on this because obviously this is a complex thing and, you know, it, it actually stemmed from a question that I saw on LinkedIn, somebody asking this specific question saying should a candidate you know reveal uh, his or her mental illness at the time of uh, hiring or should he not right um, and that sort of got me thinking that you know uh, in India we have this strange thing of asking right like really personal questions at the time of hiring right so for example you know it is not uncommon for employers to ask oh are you going to have a child in the next five months mm -hmm. or something like that which is a it's a very strange kind of uh, you know culture uh, but it that is normalized I mean the the, the strange thing is that is normalized uh, yes. but <laughs> but when you talk about your illness that somehow can be uh, you know problematic right um, moving on to to my next question, um, I mean, obviously, COVID played a very, very important role in uh, putting the spotlight on mental health. Uh, and and I mean, I'm glad that that it's happened, but also I feel like I wish we didn't need a pandemic to, you know, focus on something as integral and important as mental health. And I wish that, you know, this sort of awareness, whatever level of awareness that we have today post COVID, I wish that we 
achieved this sort of awareness, you know, maybe 20 years back when I got diagnosed or you got diagnosed, right? When, because then things would have been a lot easier for us. Yeah. Uh, but uh, of course, you know, um, uh, the, the fact is that today it is at least a topic of conversation, which is a great thing. But often, even in the mental health discourse today, and with all the discussions that are happening today, I think often people forget how hard it has been for people who are already mentally ill, like yourself, like me, like millions of other people, to have navigated this phase of complete uncertainty, complete um, hopelessness, being confined, uh, being in a in a, a very long and extended phase of continuous, uh, you know, apprehension and anxiety. Right? Um, how hard it has been for us to actually navigate this period, the the, the last two years uh, of our lives. Uh, you've actually written about all that COVID taught you in your blog. Uh, there are, I think, three different block block pieces on that, right? Uh, yeah. My question to you is, how have you managed your illness through the pandemic? Uh, and uh, what are some of the things that you would perhaps want to talk about uh, regarding the persistent triggers and how you've sort of managed the illness through the uh, through the last two years? You know, for the most part, um, I have been able to manage it quite well. Um, my husband and I went about life as usual, as usual, as much as we could. Uh, meeting a small group of friends regularly uh, definitely helped, and exercising definitely helped. We also managed to travel a little bit. Uh, but in September last year, my father was um, admitted to the hospital for COVID, and ended up being in uh, the ICU for two months for post-COVID complications. Um, and we nearly lost him twice. Um, strangely, I was able to handle that pressure and stress and responsibility. Um, it was as if a, a different part of my brain had kicked in. Um, but then a strange thing happened is that last month in, in January, I had a freak seizure. Um, I, I am epileptic, but the kind of epilepsy that I have, it doesn't cause these kind of full-blown seizures. But that seizure somehow triggered a severe, severe depression. Um, and it, both my psychiatrist and my therapist said that it was because of all the stuff that I had sort of suppressed when my father was ill and uh, all and that is what is coming to the surface now and it's been over a month and I'm still tackling this monster of a depression so um, overall I think um, what helped me was um, friends, family, um, exercising and such. But what what did me in was, was my father's illness. And that's sort of a delayed, I'm having a very delayed reaction to it. And, uh, and honestly, I'm, I'm having a very difficult time uh, coming out of this, this phase of depression because it's been over a month now. Well, 
Sharbari, all, all I can say is that I hope that you feel better very, very soon. And um, uh, that's that's all that I think one can hope for when one is going through this phase. Um, you know, research shows that uh, bipolar disorder is often misdiagnosed. In fact, one it is one of the most misdiagnosed uh, mental illnesses. I do have a lot of friends with bipolar who were misdiagnosed and initially they were told that uh, they have depression when later on actually you know they found out that it was bipolar um, what according to you uh, is the key to getting the right diagnosis and you know what are some of the telltale signs that one should sort of look out for and uh, you know push for the right diagnosis um, yeah, you're right. It's I think it's it's easy to to misdiagnose. I would say mainly because many symptoms are common to other mental illnesses, right? Um, and I think only a competent psychiatrist or or psychologist should be trusted with this job of diagnosing. Um, the there are telltale signs, but <clears throat> I am not sure if they will figure. They'll help you figure out whether you have um bipolar specifically or you are suffering from some kind of mental illness so for example insomnia is a dead ringer there's mood swings anxiety feeling low irritability um, lethargy fatigue negativity i've realized that for me insomnia and if i'm going to a sort of start a depression for lack of a better term it starts with insomnia and negative feeling so just like being negative and irritable about everything and finally before we move on to uh, the next uh, the next set of questions you know some of the most uh, admired creative forces in the world right whether it's Scott Cobain, whether it's Stephen Fry, whether it's Demi Lovato, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Kanye West, Marilyn Monroe, they've all been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, right? Uh, do you think that, you know, sometimes a mental illness can be a superpower? The short answer is no. <laughs> I don't think okay. I'll, I have any kind of superpower. <laughs> Um, having said that, I mean, I don't know if these celebra celebrities have um, or had uh, bipolar one or two, because like I mentioned before, the two are quite different. And um, if they had one, then um, I think it's possible that when they were in the throes of a manic episode, it can perhaps feel like a superpower. I mean, that's what I've read and that's what I've heard, that if you are in a going through a manic phase then then you are just bursting with energy and creativity um i've never had that main mania so i can't speak to it um but like you mentioned right in the beginning this disease is all consuming right and and you have to constantly work on you have to constantly work on it basically and it's a constant struggle and um, to even live a normal life. So no, to me, it doesn't feel like a superpower. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. 
We move on to take five with Piali. Uh, quick, uh, rapid questions. The first one is a book on mental health that you would like to recommend to listeners. Uh, so this is specifically to bipolar. It's called Bipolar 101 by Ruth C. White and John D. Preston. Fantastic. Complete the sentence. Mental illness is? Nothing to be ashamed of and it is manageable. What is the one thing you should not say to someone fighting a mental illness? It must be a phase or give advice like drink warm, warm milk or <laughs> no, no, you that's, so, that's so fast that's so fast drink beer i've 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 got a lot of that but drink warm milk is is definitely a first have the more turmeric like all kinds of ridiculous. yeah right uh your recipe for self-care exercising reading murder mysteries hanging out with friends and watching mindless TV. And oh, and, also, and my dog, your dog. And I think you also do quite a bit of bird watching, don't you? Um, I mean, when I'm here in Pune with my parents, there's a lot of there are a lot of birds that come to the house. So I, I thought I do bird watching. I do lazy man's bird watching, which is standing in the terrace and waiting for the birds to come. Well, that's not too bad either. And finally, a message to those that are suffering from a mental illness, a message of hope. Please talk about it and get help. Um, it You can manage mental illness and live a very full life with it. So yeah, that's my advice or message. Thank you so much, Charvati, for doing this. I really, really do appreciate you taking time out to sit down with me and having a conversation despite not really feeling too well, uh, I know. Uh, but thank you so much for, for doing this. Time for a mental health fact of the day. Members of LGBTQI community are almost three times more likely to experience a mental health condition such as major depression or generalized anxiety disorder. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Mind Podium. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please do subscribe to The Mind Podium and click on the bell icon. Also, share it with your family and friends. Together, we can normalize conversations around mental health. Catch you soon.